Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Thank you, Dr. R. That's how we refer to each other. We're both, he's R, last name, I'm R, last name, so we text each other as Dr. R. And uh, uh, we both have a doctor in this, doctorate in this disease, and uh, we earned it in the laboratory of life. Um, my name is William. I am a real sexaholic. And if you want to know the difference between a, a, a real sexaholic and a moderate sexaholic, look it up in the AA Big Book. It does a great job of describing the difference. I'm a real one. There's no doubt in my mind or my wife's mind that, oh, I've got to start my timer. They promised to cut me off at 25 minutes, no matter how many more miracles I want to tell you about. Now, is that fair? I mean, you know, I'm 71 years old, and I've been in the program 26 years. That's about a, a miracle a minute. So, anyway, life isn't fair. So, um, I wanted to um, start by... I got this on my phone. I never got it elsewhere. Personal intro. Name. I did that. Sobriety date, 6-12-93. That date corresponds to my failure to introduce my wife on June 10th, 1993. For some reason, she was upset. It was a social situation like this, and I introduced our two children and forgot to introduce my wife. And she, did, she confronted me about that, and I went into minimization, denial, and self-justification. She got really upset, drove off with the kids, and left me in a, where I was at a monastery preparing talks on love and forgiveness. And uh, <laughs> even though I hadn't heard of SA yet, I knew masturbation didn't work for me, and I had resisted it pretty successfully for almost three years. But that pushed me over the edge. In other words, I was a dry drunk uh, with no program. And so uh, I made it through the night, but I acted out three times the next morning. And uh, that day on a second hike up the mountain, I met a rattlesnake and I had this image. Sometimes I see images of God raising his hand on a bare-bottomed baby, and he was just about to let it fly. I could just see the fangs of that rattlesnake sinking into my leg. And uh, I repented without any step work. I mean, that, is that cool or what? <laughs> and so I called my wife to see what she'd done, and she said she'd gone shopping. <laughs> I mean, is that an easier, softer way or what? She calls it retail therapy. Well, anyway... So I'm going back to what it was like. Started acting out when I was 13 years old. As soon as I entered puberty, I started masturbating and inflicting pain on myself. Continued to act out for the next 32 years. 
till I was 45. 32, 12 years were in our marriage. So what it was like being married to me. With that, I'd like my wife, Rosalind, <laughs> brought my Kleenex, Renshaw, of th my wife of 38 years to come up and give you a snapshot of what it was like. She wrote this poem 10 months before she married me. So if you want, so here's Rosalind. I wrote this on November 3rd, 1980, Rage. What a day this has been, God. There'll never be another one quite like it. Did that really happen this morning? I have never seen such boiling anger, boiling over with flames darting from his eyes, arrows spewing from his mouth, the chair flung towards the trees, all of it directed at me with its full venom and heat, and yet I felt strangely detached and secure. I could hardly absorb that I was sitting there, forcing myself to look at this raging bull, and yet for once in my life I didn't feel fear, nor did a single tear wet my cheek. I'm sure you were protecting both of us with your love, as we loved each other in spite of or because of the anger expressed. He stood his ground like a prize fighter, shoulders spread, hands twitching, ready for more action. I sat and watched, immobilized, but at least I was breathing. Thank you, Rosalind. Um, so um, that gives you a, 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 that was 10 months before we got married. She had uh, to endure 12 years of that <laughs> off and on. Bill W. wrote in the big book, How Dark is the Night Before the Dawn. It's one of my favorites. It's dark. Uh, I didn't reach the zenith of my acting out until we decided to go to a seminary in Pasadena. And uh, in that first year, I was so busy working two jobs, going to graduate school. Rosalind was going to graduate school. We had, she was pregnant with our second child, and our first child was four years old. And... Uh, I had a clear mental picture of not living to see my son. <laughs> to see my son born. And uh, th thank God he intervened. And I twisted my ankle playing basketball after having a beer when my wife said I should eat something first before I went out on the basketball court. And that broke the addiction cycle till S.A. found me. And, uh, and now I have a grandson, and if you haven't seen his pictures, you know, come see me. It's, it's a miracle <laughs> <laughs> that we have a grandson, that I have lived now. My son's 29 years old. And uh, so that's a great thing. 
So I went, what happened? I went to my first SA meeting in Pasadena. Somehow we were drawn to that seminary, even though we had scholarships to other seminaries and paid big money to go to that seminary. And lo and behold, that was the seminary the founder of our program had gone to and left when you read that white book story. And uh, I went to my first SA meeting. It was in a dark basement in a church in Pasadena. And lo and behold, who was there but the founder of our program. And, uh, but the image I had walking into that meeting was of E.T. If, if you haven't, we don't mention movies, but the only reason I mentioned it was because he was an extraterrestrial being that got planted here on earth and he didn't fit in. And that was me. I never felt like I fit in. I knew I wasn't normal. And uh, when I got to that first SA meeting, I thought, I've found my spaceship. <laughs> These are my people. They know where I'm from and where I'm going. What a gift. Talk about miracles and talk about surrender. That's where surrender began for me, and serenity and miracles started there, because my sexaholic did not know what a miracle looked like. It had 32 years of proven there were no miracles, and the God I knew and the faith, my faith tradition could not turn that around. I was full of lust, reeking of lust, like the 12 and 12 says. Uh, so I did the steps actually with uh, uh, this fellow in the program, and the, the first step the uh, founder came to, my first step, and he, after he listened to my first step, he said, there are those two who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders. <laughs> But many of them can recover if they have the capacity to be honest. So I won't go into details about my first step. My, my fourth step, uh, one of the gifts my second sponsor gave me was he said, besides your resentments, I'd like you to write down the exact nature of your wrongs. Because he mentioned, it mentions in the fifth step, we admitted to God, ourselves, and another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. I thought, oh man, that opens a bag of worms. I mean, it's bad enough to write down your resentments, but I had a whole nother list, some 50, 60 things I'd done that were pretty awful. And after reading the first 10, my sponsor said, you're violent. I don't know where he got that conclusion. He hadn't read my wife's poem, but... Um, you know, so talk about emotional sobriety. That's a miracle. I haven't had that kind of rage for a long time. I've gotten angry. I just got angry at my daughter-in-law. I didn't jump out of the car or anything, but she stopped for a cup of coffee, and I th said, we're going to miss the flight to Seattle so I can speak at the convention, and didn't seem to bother her. So anyway, um, so the other thing that, you know, the white book says the first step takes me. And I just, I knew, I just couldn't buy into the fact, I couldn't say I am a sexaholic and feel good about it. I thought, you know, doesn't God know I've been, a, you know, in my faith tradition for years and am in seminary and all of this stuff. And, uh, and so I, I meditated, you know, I wasn't on the 11th step, but I meditated. I, I would read the big book and say, speak to me, my higher power, speak to me, and and two lines jumped out at me. The one that says, the first step of recovery is to fully concede to my innermost self that I am a sexaholic.
So I just let that sit there. And the other piece in that chapter 3 said, uh, we've lost our legs and we'll never grow new ones. And as a bus driver, I see plenty of people who are bound to a wheelchair. And if they thought they'd get around town without it, they're kidding themselves. So that settled in on me. And I, um, I woke up one morning in that first year and I saw myself and I, th- I saw myself and I thought, you know, if, if <laughs> those first 12 years we'd known I needed a wheelchair and Rosalind would have brought it around to my side of the bed and I'd gotten in it and we'd gone through our day, the first 12 years would have been a lot different. And so now I, I sit in that wheelchair, try and sit in it every day. You know, it's the program. It's the steps. It's sponsees. It's my sponsor. It's conventions. It's retreats. It's working with the Correctional Facility Committee. You know, it's going to fellowship, going to Russia with friends in the fellowship. We took a team of six. We had to have, that's what I mean, if it had been Essanons, it would have been great. But it was sexaholics. We had to have a 12-step meeting every morning just to get along with each other for the rest of the day. (laughs) So let's see. Uh, So, you know, when I arrived in Seattle, I was sober four years, 13 minutes left and counting. One of the experiences I want to... So my wife got this, what I considered, prestigious job, and I'm sitting at home sending her off to work and full-time, I mean, primary caregiver to our kids. I thought, there's something wrong. People would call me Mr. Mom. I'd go to PTA meetings and kind of like Brian and SNN kind of thing. Oh, well, this is great. I'm the only man here, you know. And uh, so I was complaining to God about it, and I got a call from a trustee of the fellowship, and she said, you know, we're interested in somebody restarting the, SA, the outreach to prisons. Would you be willing to give us a proposal? Look at all the boxes of letters and stuff like that. So I did that. And the wonderful thing was, because, because since we'd both gone to seminary, but my wife got a job as a clergy person, my will, you know, turning my will in my life over in the third step is not just like a one-time experience. You know, I got to that point, and I was not interested in God's will. But as soon as I got that call, I thought, this is my next assignment. This is what God wants for me. I wasn't too sure why he picked me out, but <laughs> I knew. And there's no joy greater in life for me than knowing I'm doing uh, <laughs> God's will. Nothing. No acting out, no nothing matches, knowing I'm doing my father of lights, as the white book calls it, father of lights will. So um, one of the things that came about at that time, I just want, when I think about a miracle, one of the ways I define it is, what are the chances of that happening? Right? And there was a breakout meeting on how our dark past is our, in God's hands is our greatest possession, right? So one of my issues is attraction to minors. You know, so uh, it's just part of my inventory. It wasn't a huge part, but it sure it could have put me in prison. And so um, anyway, one of the trustees uh, said, hey, I do 12-step workshops for Catholic parishes. How about coming and sharing the fact you're a sect? I've never had a live ex. He did these 12-step. He said, I've never had a live one of you stand up and talk. 
I thought, well, that sounds fun, talking in front of 300 Catholics about my sexual addiction and, and that sort of thing. But he warned them about it, said, if your teen isn't ready to hear about this, you know, don't bring him or whatever. So I, didn't, I hadn't been to Bremerton. I knew there were sexaholics there. But uh, there was... Uh, so uh, after I got off the ferry, it's about a 45-minute ferry ride from Seattle, I asked, stopped at a bagel shop to ask for directions to this Catholic parish, church. And uh, this lady, young lady at the, at, the, at the counter said, oh, well, you know, it's just a block here and then a couple blocks up there. And out came this big hunk of a guy uh, from the back room. He said, hey, are you going to that 12-step workshop? I said, yeah, I'm headed there. He said, I'll give you a ride in my pickup. I was going there. And I said, oh, okay, that sounds great. So he gives me a ride. He says, you are a priest? I said, no, I'm not a priest. Uh, I didn't say what I was. I just said, I'm going to share some of my story at this, at this uh, workshop. So I got introduced. I shared my story. And afterwards, nobody approached me. You know, afterward, we had a chance to socialize, you know. <laughs> it wasn't going to happen, you know. So... But this guy came up to me, and he said, hey, I'll give you a lift back to the ferry. And I said, oh, great, thanks a lot, that would be great. So as we're driving back to the ferry, he said, I told God, he's, I said, I, he said, I'm banished to the bagel shop by my wife for, for what I did to my daughters. And he said, I told God that if he didn't send somebody today I was going to commit suicide. Now, who times that out? You know, that takes all my dark past. It doesn't change the fact that I hurt people, that, you know, it, it just, in God's hands, it's used to save people, including me. That's, that's this wonderful play that fits in well to, to my story. So uh, I got 7.59 left. Um, let me just tell you a little bit about birthdays. You know, my wife, can you believe this? I mean, I mean, Rosalind, not my wife. She doesn't like that one I just said. Rosalind, when I was turning 60, decided to go to Europe for six weeks and miss my belly button birthday. Now, does she need Essanon or what? <laughs> so... You know, I thought, do I get on the pity pot? But I'd already tried that on my sponsor. And he said, I'll get you the toilet paper. How long do you want to sit there? So it just doesn't work. So uh, I thought, what can I do about this? I thought, I'm going to talk to my, I'm going to get my SA family together, and we're going to celebrate my belly button birthday. So sure enough, one of my sponsees took over. He said, I'll set it up. You know, you just come. So I came, and we, had, we ate and had our cake, and then I thought, well, now what do we do, have a meeting? I mean, gosh, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'd never taken SA outside of a meeting, except maybe to carry the message or something. But I'd never had fellowship like this in the context of real life, which if we read the AA Big Book, that's what it said they did, right? So 
this other sponsor, he said, why don't we sit around and say what we've appreciated about William? I thought, oh my God, let me out of here, you know? <laughs> this is too personal. So anyway, that's what they did. One of my friends wrote a poem that I'm still trying to get out of him 11 years later because I loved it. It really built up my self-esteem, but he's hiding it. So anyway, we had these off and on. I'm now 71. We had one for my 71st birthday in July, and there were 55 people there. And it's not about me. For me, it's about the fellowship that happens. And spouses of sexaholics come that have never come to an Essanon meeting. And some of them are here tonight. So, you know, that's God working through birthdays. So the amazing, one of the amazing pieces of that is there was this sponsee who had a lovely home who was hosting these birthday parties that we changed to fellow, fellowship events. And, um, and then he got tired of doing it. That was unfortunate because he was a culinary five-star chef. And... Uh, <laughs> My wife said, why don't we host that in our home? Woo! Did you hear her poem? And now she's suggesting filling our house with sexaholics. Not everybody's as sick as I am, obviously, but still. Great, great good news, you know. And our marriage is, um, I mean, five minutes left. Are you, are you timing it? I got 4.58. Okay, you're on track. Uh, so, one other little qu quickie is I had atrial fibrillation, and I, you know, the God speaks through people in the program to me. You know, so I told one of my friends who's from Nashville and has moved out here, out west, where the real recovery is happening, and uh, he, he's, I said, what do, how do I know whether to do a chemical? thing or this ablation, this four and a half hour heart procedure where they come up through your thighs and mess around with your heart and it's supposed to get it back in rhythm. I said, I don't have a clue. Does God have an opinion on this? You know, and uh, somehow I got to get serenity around this and I don't want people coming inside my body and me being out cold and all of that. So he said, well, why don't you talk to a few doctors? You know, so I talked to a few here and he said, why don't you call my sponsor in Nashville? And I thought, I don't even know the guy. And, uh, but he gave me his number, I called him. He spent 45 minutes listening to me. And, and then he said, you know what? It's uncanny. I just read an article in the American Journal of Medicine, I think that's the right name, about ablation. And it's fresh in my mind. What are the chances of that? I said, well, what would you do? Because my doctor, you know, my doctors won't give me their personal opinion. It's not their, it's unethical. This guy, he's a sexaholic. He said, I'd do an ablation three times in a row if it took it to get my heart back in rhythm. <laughs> and I was at peace, complete serenity around having this operation. My heart's been beating normally for over three years. How about that? Yeah. So I want to close with, you know, I, I would say early on in the program, I could lose my family, my wife and two lovely children, and I would grieve their loss beyond measure. But I have every reason to live. I know what my primary purpose for being on this planet is. It's to stay sexually sober and carry the message of sexual sobriety. And, there, you know, God gives me different joys from different things. You know, having a grandson, we spent 12 days with him in Maui recently. 
And uh, man, whew, what, a, what a wonderful bonding experience with a 14-month-old. But this whole thing <laughs> about, <laughs> I thought it was bonding anyway. We did rolled away, rolled away, rolled away. Every burden on my heart rolled away. And this little 14-year-old would put his hands on his heart whenever we got to that. So two minutes and 13 seconds. Primary purpose. I know what my primary purpose is. And finally, recently, a, a fantastic piece of literature. I mean, I applaud the Literature Committee of Sexaholics Anonymous for coming out with some fantastic literature. One of the, one of the ones you've all seen is hopefully is Step Into Action. And I was reading in Step 12, we were reading it in one of our noon groups, and it had this line from a revered, that's, it's 145, I got my thing going. Anyway, uh, uh, it, it says something like, uh, you may be, this old, revered old timer said, you may be the only white book anyone ever reads. So I've kind of modified that to say, I want to spend the rest of my life being a living white book. Thanks very much. I'm all. <laughs>